Good morning to everyone. We do have a lot of visitors this morning. We are so pleased that you have, have come our way and, and hope that you have been encouraged so far and that the lesson this morning will be, will be good for you to hear, that it will be from God's Word. I am going to be reading from the Bible. If you've got your Bible, please get it out right now. We're going to be in it. We're going to be uh, um, in it a lot, so I want you to follow along, please. Uh, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start there. Too loud? Turn it on? All right, well, we'll do that. All right, how's that? Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1. Very first verse says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Well, who is this Isaiah that you speak of? Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, verse 5, was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were, and they were looking at John like he was crazy because of this unheard of method to start a new life to the Lord. No, they were not looking at John like he was crazy. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. All right, a lot of you have seen this picture before. I preached a lesson uh, two years ago, September the 10th, 2020, and, and no, I'm not repeating that lesson. This is the sequel. This is part two. Uh, this is actually what I wanted to preach uh, two years ago, but I had so much material, I didn't even get to what I wanted to preach. So, so I'm, I'm very excited this morning uh, to continue my thoughts in baptism, uh, starting in, in the book of Mark. Uh, and I've been contemplating this for a long time. And uh, um, if you did not hear that sermon, uh, it is on the website uh, September, the, actually it was September the 30th, uh, uh, two years ago. But uh, what we discussed, I'll give you a quick uh quick review, we discussed what symbols were and how they are often uh, real-life things um, that illustrate big ideas. So uh, I guess, you know, God used tons of symbols. If, if we were to think about it today, uh, if I did something, you know, to my kids, uh, I'd, I'm trying to think of uh, something that years later they would say, "Oh, that's why Dad uh, uh, broke that uh, broke that piece of bread in five different places and said this represents this." And then 30 years later, it happened, and uh, it's just it was you know a very weird thing. But God, when God does it, and He's done it over and over and over again, uh, and then we study it, we read about it, and the history comes true. Uh, we're to pay attention to those things. Um, and, and one of the, the biggest symbols was the day of rest. Um, 
that God created the world in, in six days. On the seventh day, he rested, right? Uh, obviously, God did not rest because he was tired. Uh, he had a very special purpose for that day seven. Uh, he was teaching a lesson. He would later show his people uh, um, that they too would set apart a holy day, a day of, of rest. Trusting God would, would provide for their, their every need and uh, while they literally rested from their labors. And he called it the Sabbath day um, in Exodus chapter 20, which was established thousands of years from the day of creation. Um, and God really thinks ahead. And, and uh, he does this all the time. And he meticulously recorded this kind of, these kinds of lessons, uh, both uh, recorded the creation sequence and then the fulfillment uh, in that Sabbath, um, that Sabbath rest. So everybody could see it. They could see it back then, and we could read about it, and we could see it today, and we could understand it. Um, I did this, so now you can go and do the same. God's teaching and his symbols transcend time. And I think we can all understand the illustration. I rested, now you rest. Do it and live, trust me. And, and then we spoke a little bit uh, about that famous meeting after dark between a teacher of the Jews, his name was Nicodemus, and, and Jesus. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Obviously a... a um, Kind of a kind of a mysterious cryptic language there. Well, what what does that mean? And Nicodemus tripped all over uh, all over this because he was obviously a Jew. Uh, what do you mean? I must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. I'm a Jew. I'm already in the kingdom of God. Um, but Jesus said in John three and verse ten, "Do not marvel when I say to you, you must be born again." This is a this is a different birth altogether, one born of water and the Spirit. And let's not think that Nicodemus was, was the only thick-headed religious person um, not seeing the pattern God has laid out. Um, and may th those of us who call Jesus the Son of God, let the scales fall from our own eyes. This rebirth, this transition from water to life has been taught since some of us were old enough to, to even remember anything. Uh, and yet the background behind it is still an enigma. I mean, we've got a, we've got a baptistry back here. There's, there's actually water back here. Um, hope it's warm. But uh, uh, we keep water here. Why? Why do we do that? And, and as I was growing up young, I, I thought, what a strange thing, you know, that... That uh, that happens. Wow. Why, Lord? Why this this thing? Well, God knew we'd be asking these questions, and He doesn't leave us without answers. Thankfully, and uh, little did I know that God was painting a a time mural. Who's seen the the, the murals downtown Lufkin, passing through Lufkin? Uh, I my favorite one they covered up. Uh, the one with the the um, the switchboard operator. Um, that, that, that was my favorite. I love that one. But it told a story of Lufkin's history. Um, and then there's the guy in the candy store with the lollipop. And I don't know, it, it just tells you a little bit about Lufkin. Well, God has painted a time mural 
and we call it the Old Testament. Um, and, and it's living history in order to show us how to come to Christ. Now, that's a very important painting, and we need to pay attention to that one. Uh, and, and, it's, and today we're going to talk about um, um, the stories of Moses and Noah and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha. And, and, uh, and these stories were multifaceted stories. I mean, they're, they're really cool um, in their own right. They're interesting, but they've got a message in there um, that we need to catch on to. There's more than meets the eye. And, and they are mysteries. Uh, the New Testament call, talks about mysteries a lot. And I love mysteries. And uh, some of you like to read mysteries. I do too. Uh, some of you prefer the movie, uh, uh, watching a mystery. Uh, or, or the you that have been around may have listened to mystery theater. Rodney, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but good stuff. Um, I love mysteries that reveal a surprise ending that I really could have figured out if I'd have been clever along the way, kind of paid attention, say, oh, they, they dropped all these hints along the way. Um, the M. M. Night Shyamalan movies are all that way. When you watch The Sixth Sense, you, they reveal it all at the end, and, and you're like, oh, I, I could have figured that out if I'd have been thinking. Um, but in the Bible, uh, clue after clue is given to your own life, to your transition to a, to a new life. Um, and, and so we need to go back and we need to pick up on those clues and, and, it, and it reaffirms our faith and that what we're doing is right and true and good. And I don't feel out of line to call these early lessons on baptism veiled because they, I think God designs the scriptures that way, that he wants people to, to crack it open and see that, hey, there's some, there's some things in there that God has put in there, and it, he kind of, he kind of uh, put a veil over it. It's mysterious. Uh, well, he did that because he wants you to look for it and find it, and it's not that hard. Um, uh, several of Paul's later letters speak of Christ's life and, and blessings as a revealed mystery. Colossians 2 and, and verse 2 talks about the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. The full assurances of understanding, that's what we want, uh, of God's mystery. Friends, God is so clever and so wonderful. He has done this very thing that his only begotten son, uh, or with his only begotten son, and mystery theater seems old, but, but God's mystery theater is played out in living history. Imagine using someone's life to tell a tale, not on the big screen, big screen, but in real time. His stories are better than movies. They are real life events. But God didn't just use one life or one time period. He used entire nations and even the entire world as his actors and his stage. And not for our entertainment, though it is a most fascinating story, all of these are, but are for, for our salvation. God used the acts of immersion, immersion in water to bring us to Christ. In other words, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was the capstone 
of several historical events and was always intended to be the passageway from death to life for you. It is so sad that the, the, the quote, Christian religious world today shun the participation and the significance of this foundational teaching of baptism. Most say that immersion in water is not necessary as the entryway to salvation. Good-hearted, religious-minded people think baptism is something one does in response to their salvation. And so I am here to prove, not with new evidence, but with the evidence almost as old as the earth, that to see the kingdom of God, John 3, verse 3, you must be born again. Now, I want to show you from Old Testament Scripture that immersion in water was the plan all along. Once you start looking, it's hard not to see it anymore, and you may wonder how you missed it in the first place. So let's get started. Let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 6. And Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. We're going to start with Noah. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. You know the story, the ark, the flood, the covenant. Clearly God recorded the, this event to illustrate a powerful message about sin and death and grace. All right, let's, let's ask, uh, let's go ahead and read Noah chapter 6. Let's read, start in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was very sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." We're going to ask three questions of each of these stories that we go through. All right? Noah and the flood. What did God do? First question, what did God do? Well, God gave Noah instructions on how to be saved. What was required of man in those instructions? Well, he was to follow those instructions, follow them very uh, meticulously. Um, uh, it, building the ark was uh, no small feat. And you better to be doing this right. Um, and then the third question, how did it happen? They passed through water to their salvation. Uh, we know this is a, is a uh, symbol of, of baptism because of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 20 actually says that eight persons were brought safely through water. And we're going to read more of 1 Peter uh, later, but... But let's continue on to baby Moses. Turn to Exodus chapter 2. Let's read about that, baby Moses. Exodus chapter three, chapter 2. So, the story there. Pharaoh's edict. They were in Egypt, okay? Uh, they were in bondage. They were in slavery. All the Israelite nations was in, was in Egypt. And, and uh, Pharaoh saw, saw that uh, they, these people, these Hebrews, were getting too massive uh, and too powerful, and so what was his idea? I'm going to kill all the baby boys and, uh, and try to um, you know, limit the growth of the Hebrews here. Um, and 
And the parents of Moses looked at, at their new baby boy and as you would look at your baby and, and, and they saw something good and beautiful in him. Let's read verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2 of Exodus. And the woman conceived and bore a son. This is Jochebed. This is Moses' mom. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. All right, so special was this baby that his parents are mentioned uh, for their faith in, in Hebrews 11. And then also in, in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen mentions um, Moses' parents in his sermon. He says in, in Acts chapter 20, uh, sorry, 7 and verse 20, he says, Moses was lovely in the sight of God. So not only did his parents think of him as a beautiful baby, but God saw that this baby was something special too. Um, and, and God somehow favored this child, and, and his parents knew it. So, uh, so who finds him in the Nile River? Remember, it's, it's Pharaoh's daughter, uh, and none other than, than the princess herself. And so there's a lot of things happening that, uh, that, that you could only imagine that this is, this is God's hand uh, doing all of this. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Out of the water. Please make notice that, uh, that this is all done through water. Uh, now our three questions. Baby Moses in the Nile River. What did God do? Well, I don't know how God works, uh, but we know he was involved and he favored the child, right? God somehow saved this child. Uh, I don't think Moses would have survived. Um, I mean, the Egyptians, I'm sure, were very good baby killers, and they, they, um, this was a nationwide edict, um, and, uh, and yet God saved this child. Uh, next question, what was required of man? Well, his parents had to trust God would find a way. And Hebrews 11, verse 23 said that they had faith and were not afraid of the king, king's edict. And then our third question, how did it happen? Well, Moses passed through water to his salvation. This is a theme here. I want you all to latch on to this. Moses passed through water to his salvation. All right, we're not done. Go uh, Continue in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, we're going to go to the Red Sea here. Uh, the Red Sea should spark some um, light bulbs. Uh, of what's happening here. So fast forward to the flight of the Israelites from Egypt. So this, Moses is all grown up, and, um, and he kills an Egyptian, which makes him, makes him flee from the palace, and he goes away to Midian, and then he comes back, and after he sees the burning bush, and God says, you've got to deliver my people uh, out, of, uh, out of bondage. And, uh, and, and so they do. They flee after all the ten plagues, and they flee Egypt, and, and then... Pharaoh says, what have we done? Our, our bread and butter is gone. And, and so they, in hot pursuit, go after him. 
and they pin them down at the edge of the Red Sea. All right. Um, and uh, let's read. Let's read, starting in verse thirteen of chapter fourteen, Exodus chapter fourteen and verse thirteen says, "But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent." Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as for you, stretch out your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea, the water, on dry land. Our three questions here. Israelites crossing the Red Sea, what did God do? What did God do? He gave the people instructions on how to be saved. He said, go forward. In verse 15 and verse 30, it says, The Lord saved Israel that day. On this, in, in this same chapter, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. He saved them. He saved them through water. Um, all right, the second question, what was required of man? The sons of Israel entered through the midst of the sea on dry land. You know, they could have just stood there and said, I'm not going in there. I mean, look at that. I'm not going in there. Your choice. Your choice. Um, the sons of Israel, uh, and by faith, Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 29 led them through there. And how did it happen? The people passed through water to their salvation. Is there a... You see the pattern here? They would not have been saved had they not passed through water. All right, let's keep going. Israel enters the promised land. Israel crosses the Jordan. Turn to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3 here. Moses is gone and Joshua becomes his successor, right? Um, Moses is dead. They've wandered for 40 years. Now the time has come for them to quit their wandering and enter into the promised land. Shall they uh, build a bridge over the Jordan River to get into it? Uh, no. Shall they tunnel under it? No. Shall they go around it? A hundred miles? No, just like the children's book? No, we're going to go through it. Um, Let's see the way God wants them to enter the promised land. Let's read, starting in verse 14 of Joshua chapter 3. Verse 14. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people. And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water... For the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam and the city that is beside Zarephan, and those who were and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, 
So the people crossed opposite Jericho, and the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Um, Let's also turn to chapter 4. I want to read in verse 21, chapter 4, verse 21. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God has done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know, that's us too, that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. All right. So what did God do? Let's look at our questions. What did God do? Verse 23 that we just read, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed. And what was required of man? Merely to cross it. You just got to cross. What if they stood there? Would they have fared better in the wilderness? For 40 years they had wandered in the wilderness. No. They would have died just like their parents had died in the wilderness. And how did it happen? How did it happen? Well, the people passed through water to receive the covenant promise and left their aimless wandering behind. I hope you're seeing this. Left their aimless wanderings behind. We're going to get there. All right. All right, Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2, it is time for Elijah to pass into the next life and it's time for Elisha, his successor, to enter into the service of the Lord. 2 Kings chapter 2, let's read starting in verse 7, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 7 says, Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance. So, uh, you remember the story. So, um, they know Elijah's, something's fixing to happen, something big. Um, And and he's traveling, he tells Elisha, you stay here, I've got to go over there. Uh, Elisha says, I'm not leaving you. Um, He says, okay, fine. Um, and And they go up to the Jordan, so they're standing there at the edge of the Jordan, Uh, stood by the Jordan. And verse 8 says, And Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters, and the waters were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Elijah did this. Now it came about when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Elijah was a very powerful prophet. Uh, God was mighty uh, in his life. And Elisha knew it. And he said, verse 10, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it came about as they were going along and talking that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire that which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. 
And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. So, our questions, what did God do? What did God do? God parted the waters that they might pass through both of them. Um, first Elijah, and then Elisha. And what was required of man? They just had to pass through it. They had to pass through it. And, and how did it happen? Well, both men passed through water, one to enter into eternal life, right? And the other one to start a new life. His ministry, uh, a life of... Uh, uh, not of pulling the pulling the plow anymore like he was doing before, but a a new and, and better life. Um, all right, y'all knew this one was coming. I hope. Second Kings chapter five. Second Kings chapter five. All right, we're going to talk about Naaman during Elisha's ministry. So it's just two pages over. Um, uh, a Syrian captain named, Naam, named Naaman has the death sentence of leprosy, um, the disease of the of rotting flesh. So, uh, so he doesn't have a chance. There's no cure for that. Um, when he is told there is a prophet of God in Israel, he wastes no time coming for help. And let's read starting in verse 9 of chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5. And verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Same guy. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? As if there was something about the water itself. So he turned away and went away in a rage. Verse 13, Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What did God do? What did God do? God spoke through Elisha what Naaman should do to be healed. And what was required of man? To merely humble himself 
in obedience to that word and do it. Go wash in the Jordan. And how did it happen? Naaman passed through water to his salvation, and he was made clean. Um, as clean as a baby, a baby's skin, uh, and as, as pure as a baby's uh, baby skin when they are born. All right. This last one is awesome. Turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. This one's my favorite. Jonah was told by God to preach repentance to the Babylonian capital, capital of Nineveh. Well, he didn't want to do that. Uh, he didn't want to so bad, he bought a one-way ticket to Tarshish. And he got on a boat and, and hid himself, and he fled from God. Uh, and, and, of course, God knows where he is. Uh, he, uh, God uh, sees him on this ship, and God sends this great storm in the Mediterranean Sea, we call the Great Sea, um, and, and so much so that the ship begins to break apart. Uh, and the captain of the ship finds Jonah sleeping in the hold of the ship, and he tells him to call upon his God uh, um, for help. And, and uh, everybody, you know, there's obviously the ship is breaking apart. They're all going to die. There's no, there's no getting out of this one. Um, and, um, and so they end up casting lots and exposing Jonah uh, as the cause of this uh, and Jonah, you know, fesses up. He says, "Yes, it's me. I have, um, I have fled from the Lord, and and I didn't do what He wanted me to do. And and it is because of me that all this is happening." Um, and and let's read. Um, well, first they say, uh, "How could you do this?" To which Jonah replies, "Let's read in verse twelve of chapter one." Verse 12 of chapter 1, and he said to them, after they're like, <laughs> after they said, What should we do to you that, you that the sea may become calm for us? And he said to them in verse 12, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. Whoa, they were fighting against God here. Uh, for the sea was becoming even more stormier against them. Verse 14, Then they called on the Lord and said, We, are, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let this, us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. They understood that, yes, this is from God. So they picked up Jonah, and they threw him in the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. Then the, fear, the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights, 
Verse 1 of chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And in verse 10, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. What did God do? God saved Jonah from the storm through immersion. The ship was breaking apart. Jonah was powerless in the boat and and out of the boat, for that matter. And Jonah ended his prayer by saying, in verse 9 of chapter 2, salvation is from the Lord. You see that? Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah said, I give up. Throw me into the sea. I give up. You're right, Lord. And what was required of man? To surrender to the Lord and to die to self? Jonah knew he caused this mess. He said he had been fleeing from God. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Any of our life? His realization was painfully clear, and he even saw his deeds would soon cost him not only his life, but the, the life of others as well. And how did it happen? Well, Jonah passed through water to his salvation. Jonah somehow gathers the courage to say, Enough. Immerse me. Baptize me. Throw me in the water. I deserve to die for what I've done. And because he died for the Lord, he lived. You see that? This was truly an unorthodox passage of life, uh, or to life and duty. But God made it happen. The water all about? I don't know. But this is what God chose to use. This gives me chills. I don't know about y'all. Through water, the children of Israel left bondage behind. Now you leave bondage behind, the bondage of sin, and become a slave to righteousness. We need to trust Him. Through water, God raised up the deliverer Moses from death to life. Now you rise up and lead many people to Christ. Trust Him. Through water, the children of Israel entered the promised land. Now you enter into the kingdom of God through immersion, trust Him. Through water, Elijah entered into a new eternal life. Now you enter a new eternal life. Trust Him. Through water, Elisha invoked the power of God, saying, Where is the Lord? Now you invoke the power of God. Go into that water. Trust Him. Through water, Naaman was healed with skin as as pure as a baby's. Now you become like a little child. Trust him. Through water, Jonah repented, surrounded, uh, and he surrendered. He surrendered all. He gave up all, and he was made alive. Now you repent, surrender all, and live. Trust him. And through water, Noah and his family were saved. Now you 
be saved from this perverse generation, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, all this uh, prefigured a literal death, burial, and resurrection that changed the world. Jesus died. Now you die to sin. Trust Him. Jesus was buried. Now you get buried. You get immersed into water and the Spirit, as Jesus told Nicodemus on that day. Trust Him. Jesus rose from the dead. Now you experience a a rebirth, a new life in Christ. Trust Him. And uh, let's let Peter um, let's let Peter link all all of this together. Turn to First Peter chapter one. There are three verses here that Peter, the denier of Jesus at one time, spells out very clearly in First Peter chapter one and verse twenty-three. It says. For you have been born again, look at that, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding Word of God. Um, and, and in verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, and then also, back in chapter 1 and verse 3, he ties it all together, this being born again. Born means begotten. We are begotten of God. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us. Look at that. Begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, if, if you want... Tie those three verses together. Write the next verse, you know, after verse 23 to 21, and tie those verses together when you're teaching people about immersion. It ties it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a mistake. I want to, uh, I want to try and wrap this up. Turn to, uh, turn to First Corinthians. I'm sorry, Second Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You who are listening to this and already wear the name of Christ, the transformation has been made uh, in your lives is, I was going to say almost superhuman, but really it is superhuman. The transformation in our lives is from God, who is superhuman. And, And... Going with that theme, maybe it's maybe it's like Peter Parker. Y'all know him, A.K.A. Spider Man. Uh, when when he just realized he had superpowers, um, but we didn't get by some bit by some mutant spider or radioactive spider. Um, um, but we do have supernatural powers capable of defeating the vilest forces of evil known to man. Do we not as Christians? The devil is mighty powerful, but we have we've got we've got God powers. Um, and I'm not talking about miraculous powers. I'm talking about power to defeat the devil. Um, and we have armor and we have a shield, right? We have weapons. We've got this weapon, the sword, 
sword of the Spirit, and we have Christ living in us. That's powerful. And through humble submission and complete surrender, despising the shame, we put on Jesus. We put on Jesus like a, uh, you know, they put on the super suit, right? Put on Jesus in baptism. He is now living our life because we let him take over. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know, in most superhero movies, uh, the hero wins. It doesn't matter how many times he gets shot up uh, or how bad he gets beat up. That's, that's us. We're going to win. You know, things are going to happen to us and our, our bodies are going get, to uh, get old. Things are going to happen. Verse 2, for, for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we, we shall not be found naked. Verse 4, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. See, the Spirit of God is our secret weapon. Uh, it's the Spirit of Christ. And it's, it's a you-can't-be-killed pledge from God. Verse 6, For we are always confident, knowing that while we were at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Don't miss this, friends. Verse 15, And He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. You know, when I look at you, brethren, and we are in a tight spot, and it seems uh, that life is, is against us, and our backs are against the wall, and the devil is, is trying to beat us down, and we look at each other, and, and we kind of wink. Because we know that our enemy is powerless against us. And, and I hate to make all these movie res, uh, references, but the, uh, you know when Obi-Wan says, he says, strike me down, and I will become more powerful what I'm saying. Lord, I'm killing the old man because I know what's on the other side is you. And uh, 
and you're going to bring me through. Except this is not Star Wars, this is real. I think Star Wars stole that anyway from God. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Hmm. You know, everybody's going to be baptized in the end. The sinful man will finally be immersed, but not in water. He will be swallowed up by the grave. Well, everybody will. Uh, But the sinful man, there will be no new creature, no new life. Those that already had their new life in Christ will continue in paradise. Those that love their old life will be immersed in fire. All the wicked inhabitants of the earth were baptized in Noah's day. After much patience by God, but they weren't brought through by God, and they never rose from those waters. You can't breathe underwater. If you choose to be baptized, that water, you can't breathe underwater, but fear not. You're only under there for a second. We started in Mark chapter 1, where in verse 5, the people heard the message to repent and be baptized, and they did. They confessed their sins, and they didn't think it was strange. They knew the Old Testament, didn't they? They knew this pattern. God had showed it to them all along. They didn't even have to see Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to copy like we've got. We're, We're to an advantage there. They understood the living historical signs of the Lord. So may we all confidently say, like Jonah, I repent. I will die to my old ways. Jesus is the Son of God. Throw me into the sea so God's wrath will stop and I will be saved. And if you were once baptized, but only to appease some family member or become, or because someone told you that's what you should Uh, should do merely to show others uh, your faith or to be accepted into a church, you have not been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the passageway into life. If there are any here that need this immersion, the water is ready. If there are those here that have been... uh, have named the name of Christ and, and have a, uh, a, uh, a heavy heart and have uh, something to confess to the, the congregation, then, then I know these people. These people are wonderful and they will pray with you and, and for you and, and love you. And uh, it, whatever need you have, if you will come right now as we stand and sing the song of invitation, we'll assist you. Yeah.